I'm always trying to correct people when they say, why don't you invest in conservation instead of the extinction? Those things are intrinsically linked. You cannot separate them. It is a tool of conservation. The unfortunate reality is we are charging down a path of species extermination. We need to create tools to reverse what we've done. Whether that's from our cause or from prior generations, it's our responsibility to do this. So for me, it's not a should you, but it's like, why shouldn't you? Welcome to the Avenger podcast and this episode with Matt James. Before we get into the intro properly, I just want to mention one quick thing. After taking a lot of feedback from our audience and noticing a little bit of division in exactly what people are wanting from the podcast, we've decided to categorize some of our features a little bit differently. Most episodes of the Avenger podcast will be unchanged, but occasionally we might feature a guest who is definitely relevant to the world of adventure and exploration, but who perhaps falls outside of the remit that normally qualifies someone to be a guest. We're labelling those episodes as part of our new long-term series called The Far Reaches, where we speak to guests about subjects related to our planet and our place on it, but who aren't necessarily adventurers in the truest sense of the word. This episode feels like a perfect one to kick the series off with, so welcome to this episode with Matt James. I also want to very briefly mention we've now launched the Adventure Podcast Plus, where free subscribers get access to a newsletter that features links, insights and opinions on the world's adventure and exploration. Paid subscribers get access to a whole load of new bonus content, including a monthly Q&A with a guest, access to filmed InVision podcasts, access to our shorter-form podcasts, The Dispatches, and subscriber-only posts and articles. To get involved, head to theadventurepodcast.substack.com. Okay, let's talk about Matt James. Matt is the Chief Animal Officer at Colossal, a startup focused on de-extinction. Their goal is to use cutting-edge science, software, and tools to bring back lost species to secure the health and biodiversity of our planet's future. I met Matt on a trip into the wilds of Canada in 2023. He's often on the road, as his job is, in part, to work out what to do with these animals once they're back in the world. This introduction might feel a little surreal, but what Colossal are trying to do is 100% legitimate. In Matt's words, it's not if we can do this, but when. In this episode, we explore what a chief animal officer actually does, and how Matt's career led him to working with one of the most fascinating startups that currently exist. We talk in detail about what all of this actually means, the practicalities, the methods, the reasons, the issues, the ethics, and the controversies. There is no doubt in my mind that many of you listening will be entering this conversation feeling a little sceptical, as I was when I first heard about Colossal. But I hope you'll go on a similar journey to me and see how much of a positive impact that these initiatives could have on planet Earth. And finally, before we start, I'll just give a huge shout out to the Martin Moran Foundation, our charitable partner, who help people from disadvantaged backgrounds get outdoors, upskill and fall in love with mountains. If you're in a position to, please consider donating to the foundation. Okay, over to Matt James. So, logical place to start would be the start. If you could please begin by introducing yourself, tell me who you are and what you do. Yeah, I know. Well, excited to be here. And uh, my name's Matt James. I'm the Chief Animal Officer at Colossal Biosciences. Uh, so, right, Chief Animal Officer is probably not a title you're accustomed to or when you run into every day. I kind of like that. That's a, you know, a unique selling point for me. Uh, but basically, it means that I work at Colossal, which is a 
the de-extinction company, sort of the first company to reform around this idea of using genetic engineering and advanced reproductive science in order to restore species from extinction. And as you might imagine, along the path of de-extinction, there's a lot of intersections with animal life. And, uh, and I come from a background of working and caring for and conserving animals. And so now I run a division within Colossal that is focused on things like husbandry, animal care, reproductive science and surrogacy, uh, the conservation of wild, currently extant endangered species. And then um, some of all of those interesting government intersections we have with regulatory bodies when we think of what the hell is this company doing and how is this legal or how is where is this not been regulated yet? I, I get to help with a lot of that stuff as well. Okay, Ace. And I think to give us some context, and it's probably worth mentioning, you know, that you and I have met in person on a um on a trip in Canada and we spent some time together. So I know a little bit about you, but not very much really. You know, we mostly just had some fun in the wilderness. Yeah. But um where do you come from? You know, how do you get to where you are now professionally? I mean, I, I've talked to several people about this and, and, you know, you talk to young people and they say, well, how could I do that one day? And, and the short answer is you don't, you just, you can never plan for this type of thing. You know, even if we wound the clock back four years, I could have never guessed this is where I'd be. This is what I'd be working on. So my, my background was primarily in the life sciences. You know, when I was a kid, I loved nature. I loved animals. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to interact with the natural world, most specifically animals. And so growing up, you know, your parents are always like, you're going to be a veterinarian. That's what you should do, right? You kind of get pigeonholed. You know, everybody sort of, I think every profession has that generic job, not in a, in a condescending or mean way. I just mean, that, that's the sort of the lowest hanging fruit when people go, oh, you like animals, you should be a veterinarian. A long story short, I ended up uh, in high school um, interning and working in a vet clinic. I said, well, I love animals, but mm, I hated that. I definitely don't want to do that. And uh, so as I was in uh, undergraduate school, I was working on, uh, on sort of a, a veterinary track, but it was really focused on things like ecology and anatomy and physiology. And then I started mixing in genetics because I it was just fascinating to me. And at the end of my undergraduate studies, I had an opportunity to go and pursue a PhD in, in genetics or a master's degree in, in wetland ecology. And I was at the time, you know, was living in Nebraska, which if you're not familiar with the States is dead center flat, you know, not, not the most naturally appealing state. And I say that with all the love in the world, I love that place. Um, my, my, uh, the, the genetics degree was would keep me in Nebraska. The ecology degree would take me to the coast of South Carolina. And as a 22-year-old, you're like, well, this is a no-brainer, right? So I up and moved to South Carolina. I started studying ecology. I met my beautiful wife there, and I quickly realized I love being outside. I love interacting um, with animals. And this specific program was not going to let me do that as much as I wanted to. And so then I pivoted once more. And I found a position working with um, work, working with animals. Literally, you know, this is back in 2006, 2007, Craigslisting jobs in, in cool places. I found a job uh, training dolphins in Miami, Florida. And I said, that's it. That's, that's what I want to try to do next. And I applied. I got the job, moved to Miami, and kind of off to the races in, in the field of animal training, animal care. That became another 
position in, uh, within Florida working with dolphins. And eventually I got a call about working with elephants. They said, you know, we're really trying to rethink the way that we train elephants in zoos. Um, zoos have this really integral role as sort of this Noah's Ark or this assurance population against extinction. Elephants are facing a massive extinction. And so I, I sort of felt a calling to go try this thing. I was working with gray dolphins. These were just big gray dolphins on land, right? So I was like, no problem. I could totally do this. And I went, I moved to Tampa and I started working and managing a herd of elephants there and just learned so much more about conservation in Africa. I, was just, I became fixated on African wildlife and conservation. And over time, that kind of grew into more and more species within the zoo. And before you knew it, I was... Uh, I was a general curator and I'm at the zoo in Miami. I was managing 4,000 animals representing 650 species. And I was in neck deep in conservation, whether it was, you know, uh, Indian gharial, like, you know, crocodiles from, from, from Asia, or it was African elephants. I was across the board hooked, fascinated. And, um, and I, I found my passion. I had found my, my uh, life's calling. And I did all that by the time I was so fortunate. I got that general curator job uh, a month before I turned 30. So I was super young and way over my head. Uh, but I was learning a lot. I was drinking from a fire hose and just getting really excited about life. And that eventually grew into another job here in Dallas, Texas, working as a senior director of animal care at, at the zoo here in Dallas. And I was able to get even more involved in some of our conservation programs while I was with the zoo. And then one day I got a call from a friend and he said, Hey, have you heard of this crazy company that says they're going to bring back the woolly mammoth? And I said, yeah, I've, I've heard of that. He said, well, it turns out that the CEO and founder of that company, Ben Lamb is one of my good friends. I, we actually used to work together at a different company. I think you guys should have dinner. So I met Ben for dinner. He gave me his whole pitch. And I wasn't totally convinced at first. I thought, this is a little crazy. And then as we went through dinner, he started talking about, he, he I think, understood the long-term implications of this really exciting project was really going to be focused on things like uh, not just the extinction as a tool of conservation, but also advancing the other side of conservation, that traditional conservation side. And then he started talking about his commitment to conservation, Colossal's commitment, not just financially, but creating resources. And by the time dinner was over, we sort of looked at each other and we're like, okay, how are we going to make this work? And so that was, you know, two and a half years ago. Um, so two and a half years ago, Ben, Ben called me and offered me the job and just sort of said, I, this is your world. We, we have a team of geneticists. We've got computational biologists. We're really lab focused. Go build the, the animal care, the conservation side of this company. And, uh, you know, fortunately he, you know, I met the right guy at the right time. He was working on the right project. And then I sort of found myself in this, what I think is sort of a dream state job is, is this blue sky thinking for how can we make global scale change to the conservation to protect the natural world. And that's what, that's what Colossal is doing today. De-extinction is one of our pillars of conservation. And then we also focus on sort of that extent endangered species conservation. Amazing. I mean, it is just amazing. That is the right word when you think about it. Like the serendipity and the chance involved. Like, I won't use luck. That's a different, you know, but the chance involved in that is insane. Mm -hmm. it, it's been my entire life. I've never been spiritual. I've never been religious. But I, I really sort of do 
in this later stage, not hopefully not too late stage in life, um, I have come to realize the power of that that universe and the chance and sort of the that that cosmic purpose, uh, which sounds super cheesy, I know, but but like you said, it's you know people will use different words, and luck is definitely one of them. And you know, some people say you know luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? And I love that because I think that's what it is. It's sort of preparing yourself with your studies, with your career, while also opening your mind to different opportunities, different chances. And when those things intersect, having the the spine or the gumption to hop on that and say, I understand that this thing might go off the rails, but I'll will regret not taking the opportunity. Um, that's where I landed. And, and now it's nice to know how sturdy this train really is. And it's really charging forward. And so I feel rewarded for taking that, that chance. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you can guess where I'm going to go with a lot of this. I want to go into it in detail, actually. I think it's fascinating, particularly for, you know, who I think our audience are. And for me, like this whole concept, you know, if you hear it as a single sentence, you go, oh, God, or oh, here we go. But actually, when you start reading about it or talking to you about it, you go, huh, this is interesting. I guess it's similar to what you did, but yours was at scale. Um, But before we go there, I think you've touched on it, but what does the chief animal officer do really practically? What is the job? Yeah, well, first it's, it's you know, kind of a write-your-own-adventure novel. Like you get, you get to work in a, in a building with these amazing people doing incredible things, and it really is just trying to understand what everybody's doing and try to draw connections between these amazing technological feats that are happening, these scientific leaps that, that are occurring every day, and then draw that back to what is a resource gap or a technology gap that currently exists in our effort to conserve the natural world. That's sort of the biggest one that I've come to realize. And the one that I certainly didn't realize coming in was being a matchmaker between we have a resource and I've identified a need is a big piece of it. Um, so a lot of that involves me in interfacing with our amazing team of scientists. You know, we have more than 100 PhD researchers that work at the company. We have this amazing group of advisors, 60 advisors, world-renowned, you know, like Nobel laureates and and uh, all, and highly accomplished business um, executives. And it's about trying to find these places where we know we can make the biggest impact. But that also involves me being on the road quite a bit. Um, so I, I sort of talk about, I joke that uh, I'm, I'm a colossal evangelist. I'm on the road spreading the good word, trying to convert hearts and minds and and help help them open up to this sort of wild idea. We understand that we're on the forefront, we're on a leading edge of of something really interesting. And that requires um, sometimes convincing um, uh, skeptics about why they should or shouldn't consider what we do. And then a, a big piece of what we're doing is we're creating animal care strategies for species that don't currently exist today. It's one of the wildest things we do. A lot of fun. I've got this amazing team of really experienced animal care professionals that we get to write animal care manuals and strategies for species that haven't been on Earth in four, 10, 20,000 years. Um, so that that's a big piece of it. So a lot, it takes a lot of research and extrapolation from, from um, currently understood science so that we can create strategies to make sure that we're doing the best by the animals that we restore to this earth. So again, a question I'm sure you're asked all the time, but I think it's a really important one, you know, asked with kindness is, you know, the, the 
the situation our planet is in, there is a lot we could be focusing our money and our efforts on. And this this argument comes up a lot with Elon and like, why go to space when we've got stuff to fix here? Yeah. You know, whatever your views on that, I think like, why do this? Why bring back the mammoth, the dodo and everything else you're trying to bring back? Well, in, in shortest order, it's, it's sort of, we need to start paving the road ahead. Um, we need to create technologies today that are capable of saving the world tomorrow. We need to be thinking uh, about be a proactive approach to conservation. We should not worry about creating these tools when we've lost 50% of today's biodiversity. We should create those tools today because the unfortunate reality is the species are going extinct every single year. Every single year we're losing th- not just the known species, but unknown species, unidentified, undiscovered, un- undescribed species we're losing. So it's important that we that we make the advancements in these technologies so that we can create tools that allow us to bring those species back when they do uh, blink out of existence. I think that's really vitally important to, to what we're doing. Um, the, the other side of this is, is we are this amazing economic and innovation engine for the, for, for conservation and for all these problems. We have brought $225 million of funding over our, our three years from places that have never um, contributed, or I should say, uh, rarely contribute of, of significance to conservation, right? If we raise a bunch of money from Silicon Valley, and then we're able to create tools that that are then applied to conservation, that's novel money to the conservation space. That's money that would not have existed. That's technology that would not have existed otherwise. So I, I like to think of us as, as this company that is drawing new resources into a space that's been massively underfunded, under-resourced. We're bringing attention to problems that, uh, that otherwise might not garner the attention that they should. We have a very sexy, attractive brand. Uh, Ben's just a mastermind of building brands. And I think what it can do for conservation is really powerful. Um, and then finally, every de-extinction project that we have has a really important focus of how it can support the natural world by restoring the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger to the island of Tasmania, maybe even one day to the mainland of Australia. We're restoring an apex predator to an ecosystem that has been ruined with invasive species, has lost it. It lost its apex predator in 1936. And ever since then, cats and foxes and rabbits have taken over. Wildlife disease has spread. These are all Eco, ecological effects that can be remedied by having a, a balanced trophic system, a, ba- a predator at the top that balances all of the all of the prey species below. By restoring the mammoth to the wild, we can create tools to re-engineer the Arctic to make it a, a more powerful carbon sequestration ecosystem. By restoring the dodo to Mauritius, we could really bring attention to the, the icon of extinction and and restore one of the most uniquely biodiverse islands in the world. Um, so this is sort of where we think of de-extinction as one of our tools of conservation. And it, and I'm always trying to correct people when they say, why don't you invest in conservation instead of de-extinction? Those things are intrinsically linked. You cannot separate them. It is a tool of conservation. We are just at a leading edge where people have yet to fully a- adopt that, that thought. Yeah. And I think there's a, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I have no idea what I'm talking about really, but like there's a great example with the Yellowstone wolves and, you know, there's, if, if anybody listening doesn't know what I'm talking about there, you can go and Google it. And there's an amazing talk by George Monbiot called, um, 
how wolves change rivers, but mm-hmm. you remove any sort of species from a trophic cascade and you don't know what's going to happen next, right? So you put wolves back in Yellowstone, the deer change their behavior, which means the trees change because they're eating less or more, and suddenly the river changes, which means the beavers come back, which, you know... It's mind-blowing, and, and those were effects that we couldn't have even predicted when when that whole uh, that whole reintroduction scheme was drawn up. And, and you look at the bushfires of Australia, 2018, 2019, they had massive bushfires, right? And, and there were these pleas for help to save the koala because koalas were just sitting in, in these gum trees and they were burning. Uh, one of the reasons that, that you get bushfires is overgrazing from prey populations. And, you know, it's one of those things you have to realize. You have to balance the ecosystem in order to make it more resilient. And by bringing in a predator to reduce prey populations, you reduce grazing pressure and you create a resilient ecosystem. It's, this, it's the same concept as what they did at Yellowstone. And, and that is the shining example of, of apex predator restoration that I think, you know, hopefully more people are bringing on, you know, the Rockies. Um, and the Colorado Rockies just had a reintroduction of wolves as well. So hopefully we see that happening more. Europe is beginning to focus on on wolf reintroduction as well. Yeah. And I, I wonder if there's an element here of, you know, conservation sort of faces a bit of a PR crisis, right? Like when we're talking about filmmaking, we're always thinking like, how can we make conservation sexy? You know, whereas you don't need to convince me or you that we need to readdress how humanity behaves with nature in the natural world. But bringing back the mammoth, you know, as like the as the keystone tagline, right? It's not all of what Colossal is doing, not even close, but like it's a great line. And if that exactly. engages another 10,000, 100,000, 10 million people with this idea of conservation and how we interact with nature, well, I don't see how that can be a bad thing. Exactly. And, and, and the more attention, the more transparency to the problems, I think the, the, the quicker we can find solutions. The other side of this that has been sort of, I was joking with somebody the other day, my theme of 2024, and it's just been a, a you know, it's been a bug in my head for a while now. Is economies of conservation? We have to rethink how we fund e- conservation. Conservation, for since its you know start a hundred years ago, has been almost completely reliant on philanthropy with some government subsid- subsidy involved. Right. Well, then we're screwed because we can only go as far as the generosity of our donors. And unfortunately, as generous as they are, it's not enough to solve these problems. We can, as many times as we've won a battle, we've lost a hundred of them. We need to find ways to create sustainable levels of, of economy within the conservation space. It's unfortunate, but sus- sustainability is not sustainable today, right? Natural sustainability is failing. The way that we uh, use resources sustainably is failing. We need to create sustainable mechanisms to do that. And one way, the primary way to change behavior and improve sustainability is to change economies. The unfortunate reality of the world is the vast majority of us are capitalists. The ones who are not capitalists still behave as capitalists. And we have to create capitalistic incentives in order to attract people to behave appropriately. Why is it that if you own an acre of the Amazon rainforest, it is more profitable to you to log it than it is to sit on it for your entire life. You should be paid every year for saving one of the world's most unique resources, but instead we can make toilet paper out of it. It's just asinine. It makes no sense at all. 
Um, so we need to find these ways. And, and it's been emerging. It's been bubbling up. If you've heard of the carbon market or now there's a biodiversity credit market emerging, those are amazing incentives. And we need to start to really invest in that. Governments need to do more to, to encourage that. Australia is sort of leading a fight to, to build a biodiversity credit market in Australia right now. But we need to find ways to do more of that. The, the other side that I love, why I love Colossal, it's, it's a really expensive hobby. These people are super smart. They have tons of opportunity in life. So they require, you know, a certain salary, even though they're all mission driven, we still have to pay them quite, you know, a, a, a commensurate to their ability. And unfortunately, in the conservation space, with resources being so limited and people being so mission oriented, there, there's a lot of places that take advantage of that and, and underfund their, their positions. And what that unfortunately means is that if you're a brilliant scientist and you have an opportunity to go into uh, human health research or to get into investment banking, you're going to do that before you go and do something that, that might be able to change the natural world. Now, the human health stuff is obviously extremely important. We're all humans. We all want to be healthy. I get it. But it is a little saturated at the moment. Um, investment banking or, you know, um, any any other of these, these high margin jobs, uh, why, why can't we compete with them? It's because we're resource limited. So if we're creating economies of conservation that attract the best and the brightest to the world's hardest problems, then we're solving issues, then we're making progress. But if we are trying to fight one of the world's hardest fights and we don't have all of our varsity level players on the field, we're going to lose, right? Yeah, totally. And it also seems like... Um linked to that maybe the priorities are in the wrong place because you know you to, to build on what you're saying well you're going to get paid an extra zero to go and conduct research for nestle rather than for a little yeah. ngo who wants to go and do whatever you know and i hate to break it to you but nestle probably have an agenda um <laughs> uh, but then when we think about like is, there's some ridiculous stat like less than 0.1 percent of global biodiversity has been surveyed or studied for the benefit of humanity or the planet so like there is probably a plastic eating enzyme that exists somewhere on this planet there is probably a cure for cancer that comes from the natural world like chemotherapy comes from a sea sponge you know and yep. we don't realize if you speak to that capitalist idea that actually well there's medicine you can go and find out there in the amazon rainforest and you can sell it exactly and and that bioprospecting idea is is you know it, it is gaining traction. People are investing in it, but not to the level that they should. And then, you know, to, to your point on sort of the amount of the natural world that we understand or we've described, it's pathetic. It's really sad. And that's why people get upset when Elon is trying to go to Mars. I get it. But at the same time, he is also an economic and innovation engine. And he's doing things that will have amazing tangible applications to, to, to our world. Um, but... One of the things that we've been doing and in our conservation strategy at Colossal is closely tied to our, uh, we have a partnership um, with, with the conservation group called Rewild and they have, um, they have a, a, a top 25 lost species. So like this, this idea of these are species that were, were previously described, have been lost, thought to be extinct for a, um, a certain number of years. And then it's a, an effort to go back and find them. Because if we don't know that they're there, we can't protect them. And so I think, you know, that lost species idea is really amazing. And it's one that I've wanted to sort of piggyback on and, and create sort of that, that 
go back to the Darwin days and go back to Explorer days where we say we want to describe more species. Where are the places that we are not seeing things? Now, obviously, a lot of the species that we're not describing are invertebrates or they're, they're fungi or, you know, they're, they're, they're plants. Um, so it's not as, as exciting as getting to go and to name a whale after yourself. In some cases, for some people it is. Maybe not for me or you because we like the adventure stuff. Um, but right, if, if they said, well, go to Papua New Guinea and, and find five new species, we could do it tomorrow. If you gave us the budget, we, we could be on the island and I, I would tell you, we, we'd probably find 10 undescribed species because there are places of this world that are still yet to have that level of interest in that, that scientific exploration. Yeah, PNG is the perfect example. We're working on a concept behind the scenes at the minute with a load of scientists to go there to do this incredible project that sees us go um, across the whole island of New Britain. And one of the scientists who was out there on the recce, they discovered 12 species of orchid by accident, you know, because he's, a, he's, a, he's an orchid fanatic and he just spent mm -hmm. two weeks there going, that one's new, that one's new, that one's new. And I think this plays into something that, you know, I, I talk about this a little bit sometimes on this podcast, but maybe a bit more today is like, we talk about this golden age of exploration, right? That was a thing. It was named. Actually, it was like a golden age of kind of conquest-based exploration, yeah. which was about white men planting flags for queen and country. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a golden age, a platinum age, a diamond age of exploration that we are just entering right now, which is like conscientious, intelligent exploration. And it... You think about it, like, it's so exciting. I mean, what's more hopeful when you face these global crises than the answers are probably all out there. We just need to go and find them. Exactly. I, I love that idea. Um, you know, because we do sort of uh, romanticize that golden age of ex exploration, but it was colonial. It, it was colonial conservation, right? It was going in, naming something after yourself. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing when you, you, you just go through Africa and you think of how many species are named after rich white guys? And you know, well, this is just ridiculous. Like these animals clearly existed before the white guys showed up, right? Uh, so, so there there has been uh, more of an effort to go back and rename things in native language, and that's been fantastic. But to your point, it's now conservation is focused on things like capacity building for the native range, wherever you you might be um, acting, and then using and and ensuring that there's benefit sharing with the people that help discover those things with the land where those animals or plants um, come from. So I'm really excited for where we're heading, not just because of that conscientiousness, but also because the technologies we're able to apply today, things like eDNA or environmental DNA, give us amazing opportunities to sample the natural world completely passively and find new genetic strains that we go, well, we don't know what that is, or that's a new species of something very similar to what we do now. Uh, I, I'm really excited. I think what we'll see uncover in the next 25 years is going to be mind boggling. Yeah. So to speak to kind of Colossal's mission a bit more then, because, you know, you, I've read the website through a few times for lots of reasons. And, you know, you, you read Mammoth, you read Dodo. Obviously, I'm guessing rhinos are a pretty hot topic because they're so significant to us. I, romantically, I use loosely as a term, but like they're, they're important to us um, narratively right now. They represent a lot. What are you working on that isn't like the PR opportunity? You know, is there is there lots of different work being done in the labs with multiple species? Yeah, you know, we so we have our three de-extinction programs. I'm, I'm excited to also say that there are several sort of stealth de-extinction programs that that will be um, unveiled this year. And there there is a cadence. So there is a plan coming to talk more about what what we're doing. 
on the de-extinction front. What I'm, you know, really excited about is the last year we've really started to focus a lot of our PR effort on sharing our, our wins and our conservation successes. Um, so, you know, you you bring up Rhino. We we just partnered with a group called BioRescue, which is a international consortium of some of the most incredibly intelligent people you can imagine, like Thomas Hildebrand and Frank Goritz at um, IZW, which is a research institute in Berlin. And they're working on rescuing the northern white rhino. They've been, this is a project they've been on for 10 or four years. And uh, I don't know if you just saw the news broke last week that unfortunately one of their southern white rhino surrogates had passed away. She, uh, I think it was Clostridium. So there was a flood event that happened. It brings, sometimes it brings these toxic bacteria to the surface. And she uh, contracted a, a bacterial infection and passed away. But the exciting silver lining of the whole story was that on her necropsy or her postmortem exam, um, they realized that she was pregnant when they genetically tested the pregnancy. It was a northern white embryo that had been transferred using this, these assisted reproductive technologies. Uh, so it represents the first time in vitro fertilization has ever worked in a rhino, and it was a fetus of a species where only two animals exist on this world, and they're both female. Uh, so, I mean, just immaculate conception type of thing, right? Uh, so the fact that these researchers were able to create this northern white rhino embryo, they were able to transfer it is amazing. So we're partnered with them because what we're doing is we're working with them to identify, if you wind the clock back a hundred years, you go to Uganda, you go to the Congo where these northern white rhinos used to roam. There was this immense diversity that existed of that species. Well, today there's only two living animals and there's 10 preserved lines in a, in a, in a biobank in their labs. So there's only 12 genetic representatives of the species anymore. Well, unfortunately, that represents quite the bottleneck if you imagine the level of relatedness between each, each of those um, uh, individuals, but also what, is the, what was the diversity that's no longer represented in those 12 lines. If we pick 12 random people, you would go, well, that doesn't look like the world, right? They're, they're, we have immense diversity. So what we're doing is we're going back, working with museums, working with IZW and BioRescue to identify samples that we can sequence from, you know, how far back did these things go? You know, unfortunately, 100, 150 years ago, people were poaching them. It wasn't poaching, then it was just hunting. Uh, and and they, they mounted these animals. So we can actually sequence these skin tissues and these bones and understand here's today's northern white rhino and here's what, um, here's what the genetic diversity was. And then we can create engineering tools to confer that diversity back into these 12 lines. So instead of having 12 lines, we might have 25 representatives, 30, 50. We don't know yet. We're, we're still doing the, the analysis. Um, so really exciting. I think that's starting to show the power of synthetic biology, the power of biotechnology to the conservation world. And that, I mean, that, that went off when we announced that partnership, we, we got so many calls and emails from other groups saying, well, we have a similar problem and we have this and we have, and so I'm really excited because I think we're starting to get people to think outside of the box in that manner. I suppose your problem, you know, it's all great successes, great successes, but your problem is you're the guy who's got to work out what to do with them. Yeah. And you have to triage and make hard decisions. It really is like battlefield medicine. You know, it's unfortunate. We might go to three or four species and say, this one's too far gone. Actually, we won't do that because we're working on things that are already gone. 
But, you know, that's sort of the unfortunate reality being resource limited in conservation is that we do make those decisions as a community every day. That species too far gone. That one's not um, in dire straits yet. So we have to focus on this middle ground. But meanwhile, the, the ones that are on the edge of extinction are going extinct. The ones that were what we would call near threatened are now endangered. You know, so we're just, we're, we're not making headway. We're just spinning our wheels. So I, I'm excited because I think Colossal offers an opportunity to focus more on those those species that are at that at brink of extinction. And it kind of lets conservation push back and focus more on the species that are in uh, suitable shape and prevent them from becoming uh, on the brink. But correct me if I'm wrong. Like there, there is one big part of this that I really don't understand, which is... Um you know, I'm guessing that a major problem is habitat loss and actually available space to house animals at a global scale. You know, we're chopping stuff down, we're building stuff, we're fencing stuff off. And if you look at rhinos and the amount of like translocation that's needed because there's infighting because they're losing territory, what what are you going to do with this kind of surplus of species in places? They went extinct. I don't want to say naturally, like human caused, but mm-hmm. they've gone. What are you going to do with them? Yeah, it's it's a great question because... You know, there's no sense in putting all this effort in, which it is an enormous amount of effort. There's no sense in putting that effort in if your next goal is to chuck them to the wolves, right? It's just like, good luck out there. We understand that poaching is still a pressure and habitat loss is still a pressure and wildlife disease is still a pressure. So that's where we partner with conservation organizations. We have amazing partners, like I mentioned, Rewild. We have about 25 in total. But the idea being that we are the biotechnology and genetic rescue group. You are the traditional conservationist. As we work on a species, it's important that you you begin paving that road towards reintroduction. So I think Mauritius is an amazing example of this. We announced last year that we're partnering with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, which represents maybe the definitely the leading organization that's focused on conservation in Mauritius. And if you're not familiar with Mauritius, it's a beautiful island off the coast of Madagascar. So it's an island off an island off of Africa. It's super cool. Um, and it's it was the home of the endemic dodo. That was the only place you could find dodo. Today, 98% of the main island of Mauritius has been developed. So you might say, well, this, what's the point of bringing back a dodo if only 2% of its habitat remains? Well, I think... What we've found working with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, who's this amazing, successful conservation organization, I think they have, I don't want to get the number wrong, but I probably will, but 27 breeding and release programs around critically endangered or endangered birds. Um, so they, they really know how to do this. Exactly. So we've partnered with them. They're committed to <clears throat> creating habitat, um, restoring um uh, disturbed lands so that we can reintroduce a dodo one day. And the way we do that is we focus on what were the issues with the dodo. Well, in the case of the dodo, invasive species were number one. You know, a lot of people thought uh, it was these Dutch sailors that were sort of reprovisioning on the island and they were eating dodo. But there's a, there's actually a lot of um, really interesting logs from these ships where they talk about that they, they tried one and they said it was horrible. Yeah, they hate it. It's disgusting. Now, many of them were probably hungry, so they, I'm sure they just they just ate them. But the real inter, the real issue is Mauritius was a predator-free island. That's why we ended up evolving a bird that was so large and flightless and ground nesting. There were no predator pressures 
drive that bird to be flighted, to drive that bird to nest somewhere safer. So when these sailors came in, they brought invasive species, primarily in the form of cats, but also rats. Um, and these cats and rats found these really easy meals laying in these nests on the ground, and they just ate their eggs. The cats predated on the birds. And I forget what the timeline was, but it's something between when Dodo was described and extinct was something like 20 years. It was, it was some very short period of time. And it just shows you how powerful human disturbance is. So one of the things we have to do is we have to work with the people of Mauritius, with the Mauritian government, with the NGOs like Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, with the citizens to say, not only can we do this, but we want to make sure that you think we should do it. We should do it. Then we all have to be committed to removing invasive species, restoring habitat. And unfortunately today, Mauritius is heavily disturbed invasive plants, invasive animals. But what Mauritius Wildlife Foundation has done an amazing job of is they've begun restoring the outlying, uh, outlying islands. So they actually have two pristine habitats that they've begun removing um, plants from. They've got, they're working on um, predator removal. Uh, they're doing everything we would need to do one day to reintroduce the dodo. So for us, the first time we ever reintroduce the dodo to the wild, it probably isn't the mainland of Mauritius, but it is their, their, their surrounding islands. And so that's, uh, I think, you know, just one example. Everything we do has to be in that same vein, has to be a partnership of government, nonprofit, indigenous people, uh, local community represent, representation, and then all together in, in sync committing to creating a, a place for this species in the world. Yeah, and I guess with the exception of rats and cats, for obvious reasons, without it costing the lives of the other animals that are existing there now, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, we need to build. We we can't make those decisions of this species is more important to this one if they both naturally exist in that range. But that said, if they both naturally exist, they have some natural balance. If they were invasive, like a cat and a rat, then they just unfortunately need to be exterminated. The impact of cats across the world is incredible. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I remember reading a study in North America. I think it might've only just been the United States. They estimated that cats were responsible for the killing of 1 billion birds and small mammals every year. And then just a couple of years ago, they said, actually, we got that wrong. It's 2 billion. <laughs> it's incredible. And unfortunately, everybody's got a cat. You know, most people, at least everybody loves their cat. But the cat that you see outside in your backyard, you're feeding it to try to try to uh, take care of it. I understand it's compassion, but all you're doing is decimating the natural world. Yeah, I know it is. It's a super contentious, unpopular thing to say, but it's a perfect example of that disconnect from nature in a way. Like it's a, you know, there's such a compassionate attachment to them. We we want to care for this creature. I get, totally get that. Yeah, and I totally can relate with these people that have this amazing compassion that don't want to see these animals outside starving to death. They don't want to see them freezing to death. I am 100% in support of caring for those animals. However, we are to blame for them being out there, right? We introduced them. We said, Hey, these should be domesticated as pets. You know, we did that millennia ago. Um, but then we also said, but I don't want them in the house all the time. They want to be outside. And then they went outside, they reproduced and now they're everywhere. Uh, so we have to own that responsibility. And unfortunately, the best way to be compassionate for a cat, for that animal, is to say we're going to commit to ending these feral populations. 
That doesn't mean we have to go out and exterminate everything, but it does mean we need to create reproductive control measures that make sure the next generation doesn't produce whatever that might be. Now, there's some really wild thoughts around that. There's some really elite forward-leaning thoughts, things like gene drives, if you've heard of that. So that's the ability to literally genetically engineer almost like a Terminator gene that will will keep an entire population from breeding. Um, so uh, there's a lot of fear around that because obviously any sort of genetically inheritable trait that could stop a species from breeding couldn't have a runaway effect. So there, there are still people that are working on um, how do you put guardrails on those things? How do you work with that? But if you're an island nation, if you're Mauritius, if you're uh, even Australia, especially New Zealand, you have to start thinking, how do I protect my endemic wildlife uh, from cats and dogs and foxes and rabbits? And, uh, I, and I think gene drives will be the solution. We still have to iron out the details there. Uh, but it's a very humane way of doing it. No cat is harmed. <laughs> no cat is killed. It is literally just they, they become non-reproductive and, this, and the feral population would, would vanish. You know, and you mentioned guardrails. I think we can't have this conversation, and I'm sure you're expecting it, without talking about ethics. And mm -hmm. I'm going to press the big red cliche button and say Jurassic <laughs> Park. Um, but uh, Never heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah so sure. You're, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where, I mean, let's get into the ethics of it. Where is the line? Yeah, it's a it's a really hard, it's such a sticky um, situation. It's hard to really kind of draw a clear delineation. And, and I think that's why it's so important that we have these transparent discussions constantly. You know, everybody loves the Jurassic Park line. You were so preoccupied with, if you could, you never stop to ask if you should. And I love that. Uh, I think that's something that we have to ask all the time. And uh, in order to do that, you have to bring in some really nosy, very opinionated people into your project. And so we've done that. And I say that with love because we have an amazing bioethicist, Altacharo. She's sort of a, you know, an American leading expert on, on bioethics. She's worked for groups like USDA, which is our Department of Agriculture or the FDA. Um, and, and she's really kind of asked those questions and she continues to press us. You know, I was so fortunate just last week I was in, I was in DC and she, she's based out of there. So we went to dinner. And she gets to just ask questions of us. And when we answer something that is not satisfactory, she presses harder. And I think that's that's what we need. The other side of it is once we've gone through that internal review and we have these questions with each other, we operate in a highly regulated arena. We have to talk to our regulators and say, these are the thing, projects that we're working on. How does that impact you? What are your thoughts? And in many cases, what we find is we are operating and living in a gray area. And so we become a subject matter expert to help shape and inform policy. And I think that's what's important. That level of transparency, not doing something behind a closed door in a silo, allows us to co-evolve with regulation and allows us to ensure that we are behaving in an ethical manner, in a legal manner. Um, but unfortunately, I, th I think ethics tend to lack behind technological development, right? Just as, as a global conversation. People lack, generally lack the imagination to be able to dream up some of these crazy technologies. And I don't blame them. I'm, I'm as unimaginative as they are. Um, but when you're faced with the situation, then you start asking the questions. And so we need to drive 
the conversation. And we need to be leading the conversation at the table to say, this thing doesn't exist yet, but what do you think? How do you feel? What should we be doing? Um, for me, the ethics start with um, animal use. And how does a lab animal ex- you know, um, experience welfare? What are those little individuals, what is the uh, welfare of that individual? And what are the little things that happen every day in its life that impact its welfare? And so we have this great animal care team that focuses on welfare, uses advanced welfare metrics and observational data to tell, to try to inform what level of welfare that animal is experiencing. Um, So if we could start there, we talk about our research animals, which we really, you know, is not sort of what people might imagine, not this massive lab full of mice and cats. Um, it's really, you know, researching animals in the field. We do, we work with field biologists to go out and as they're doing research, say on an elephant in Africa, we're able to piggyback and do some of our research with them. Um, and so we work with a thing called an in, uh, institutional animal use and care committee. And in the United States, uh, that's regulated by to us by the USDA in Europe, they would call it an ethics committee. Um, and we work with them and we pass all of our research through them to ensure what we're doing um, has these is within reason and, and does not negatively impact the animals that we're working with. And then on the back end is if you restore a species to the wild, the question we get is what happens to the world's loneliest mammoth when you make that first one, right? What's going to happen? Well, first of all, you have to just open up your mind to the idea that we're not making one, right? We're making populations. We're not going to start with one. We're going to start with several. We're going to work in a way with the world's leading experts to make sure that these animals are born into social herds, social groups where they can develop those, those skills. We're going to be um, studying these animals. These will be the most studied animals in the world, most likely. Um, and it will allow us to make sure that we're sort of ticking all those boxes. And then there's the big ethical question. That's the whole just because you can, should you type of debate. Um, and I think we need to look at those as sort of these weighted measurements of what are the implications if we don't do this? If we never create technology to bring a species back from extinction, then we are doomed to live in a world that is barren of natural life outside of us. We are living in the matrix type of world, right? This sort of dystopian society with no, with no, with no biodiversity. The unfortunate reality is we are charging down a path of species extermination. We need to create tools to reverse what we've done. Whether that's from our cause or from prior generations, it's our responsibility to do this. So for me, it's not a should you, but it's like, why shouldn't you? What is stopping us? Um, If we want to ask that ethical question and we want to prod and push on that so hard, we should uh, apply that level of interrogation to everything we do. Right. What are the impacts of, of jet flight? What are the impacts of cruise liners? What are the impacts of you know anything? We should be applying that same level of interrogation. But people in general, unfortunately, um, think of, well, this is civilized life and those things are just normal. Uh, you know, and those are conveniences and luxuries that we're willing to deal with because I was born and that thing existed. But when they're alive and a thing emerges, it becomes highly scrutinized. And it's just a strange human condition that that we have. So I welcome the, the, that level of interrogation to what we're doing. I would just hope everybody else sort of welcomes it to their activity. Yeah, sure. I think it's essential to welcome the interrogation when you're doing something like, you know, what it is Colossal is doing. But 
also, yeah, you're right. Like we can't just sit here now and say, well, let's just see what happens next. Like we're developing technology at a pace, you know, it's not a, a straight, it's not a straight line upwards, right? It's a big curve, the way things are going. Yeah. And I, we should not have this conversation right now, but I'm sure the same debate was had around human IVF. Like, mm-hmm. you know, should we do that? Well, we have done that. Is that the right or wrong thing? You know, I think we're all pretty sure it is the right thing. Um, yeah. And it's just people are scared of change and good. Like, let's slow down. And I think, you know, you can use AI as a really good example of this. Like most of the world's leading experts on AI think that we've moved too fast without the proper regulation. And that's really scary. So, you know, in the world of biotech and what you guys are doing, I mean, do you consider yourselves biotech? I guess it is in lots of ways. It is, yeah. Yeah. Like, let's let's just not necessarily slow down, maybe slow down, like regulate the hell out of it, be careful. Because the last thing we need is, and reg cliche button, is a T-Rex stampeding through <laughs> whichever city it was. Um, yeah, totally. I, I think, you know, it's important that, that we have regulation. It's important that we create smart, informed regulation, not fear-mongering regulation. You know, there, there is sort of this idea of, I don't understand it, therefore it's safer if we never explore it. Um, so, you know, we certainly welcome regulation, but I also think we need to strike a balance between innovation and regulation. Yeah, totally. So I've got to ask some really stupid questions. Um, I'm going to phrase them deliberately, stupidly. <laughs> Good. So, well, let know before we do, let's talk about timelines. So how sure are you, you can bring back the dodo and the mammoth? Yeah. Um, so what's really cool about our projects is each one sort of has its own unique set of challenges, pros and cons, whatever it might be. So in the case of the woolly mammoth, we have, um, 55 or more genomes from woolly mammoths, right? So we have gone in and we've actually, uh, we have all these genetic sequences that really give us a good idea of what a woolly mammoth was. And then we have a beautiful uh, model species in an Asian elephant uh, that really allows us to do the genetic engineering. Unfortunately, reproductive science is incredibly difficult. And a lot of the ethics around how we should restore the mammoth through surrogacy or some of our artificial womb technology is still out. Right. I mean, there, there are a lot of concerns around around uh, how we should um, birth a woolly mammoth. And so we're working on all of that. Um, but that said, it's all very achievable. It's incredibly achievable. And, and if you pull the curtain back, I think a lot of people would be surprised. So we're very confident that we can do this. This is uh, not a matter of if, but when, certainly. Um, the dodo is a unique challenge in that the technology we use to clone Dolly the sheep back in the late 90s that that uh, technology is essentially the basis of what we're doing um, on the embryology and genetic or sorry embryology and reproductive science side Um, instead of pulling a nucleus from a mammary cell like what they did with dolly we're going to edit cells until they become a mammoth cell and then pull that nucleus and put it into an egg other than otherwise that from from the moment the editing is done it's very similar to cloning that technology does not and has never existed in birds. Um, the way birds produce an egg is very different than the way mammals do. Therefore, we can't just drop our nucleus of interest, our genetic material, into the uh, <clears throat> into an egg. So we have to create novel pathways to do this work. 
And, and fortunately for us, there is an amazing researcher, Mike McGrew, who's had some success with this thing called primordial germ cell derivation. So that's literally tapping into the, into the uh, vein of an egg, pulling the, the blood out and culturing these primordial germ cells, which are the precursors to sperm and egg. So those eggs are like stem cells that eventually become uh, germ cells. Uh, by doing that, we can edit those PGCs and create a, our sperm of a dodo and our egg of a dodo. And then our, our surrogate birds can mate and, and literally produce an, a, uh, a, a dodo egg. So that's also, for me, since we know we've, we've um, had some fundamental breakthroughs, is a matter of when, not if. Um, and, and I think that is uh, probably, I'd say those two projects are probably going to be racing to the finish line. I think th they probably have similar time horizons. And we have things like the thylacine, which, um, you know, we're really excited. Uh, I think that, that that project's really cool. Its unique challenge is that um, Tasmanian tiger went extinct in 1936. Actually, some evidence is saying it likely went extinct even later. The last known one was 1936, died at a zoo in Hobart. And uh, unfortunately, this was a sort of a government-sanctioned extermination program. There was fear about the Tasmanian tiger poaching or um, um, killing livestock, which it turns out is really unlikely. They really fed on sort of cat-sized animals, not sheep. Um, but in that process, uh, hunters would go out, shoot a bunch of them, and then they would get money for their pelts. Sometimes when they'd bring the carcasses back, there would be pouch young in their pouch, a little Joey's in, in a mom's pouch. And museum curators, understanding the importance of all of these pelts, and uh, they were trying to preserve everything. And so when they'd get a pouch young, they would preserve that as well. And typically, you know, unfortunately what, for us, they would preserve those in something like formaldehyde, which is really bad for DNA, it degrades DNA. And so you can't really get a good sequence from, from those samples. But we did manage to find a, a one or two that were preserved in ethanol, which is beautiful for, for, uh, for DNA preservation. And so we created this pristine, high-resolution genome. So even though we only have one, it's like it's in 1080 HP, HD, right? Like, like it's super beautiful. And so we know exactly how to edit to that. But, and then the reproductive of, reproduction of a marsupial is a bit unique. It's not less evolved, but it's certainly less complex. So we're able to figure out a lot of these, uh, a lot of the reproductive issues that might exist in other species. So that's another one that I think will probably, I would say, I would feel confident saying in the next few years before those other programs, I would expect us to see a thylacine. Uh, so I'm really excited. That's a, that's an exciting project for us. It's just mind blowing. Um, I think it's like get, trying to get my head around it all. Um, cause I had, and I'm going to fess up here, like sort of, my stupid question was going to be, so are you just going to grow a baby mammoth in a Petri dish and then kind of kick it out, you know, send it off to nursery school? But yeah, more or less, more or less <laughs> right? A lot of the, a lot of the embryology, it does occur sort of in a Petri dish and, and, and we can get the embryo to a certain state where it's ready for transfer then into either a surrogate like an elephant or one of the really exciting projects we work on is artificial wombs. So uh, you think of you think of some, one of the more science fiction things we're doing is this idea that from embryo to birth, a biomedical device could gestate that, that, that baby. 
Um, and that has massive implications, not just for conservation, but also for human health. Every advancement we make there supports um, more and more critically uh, premature uh, babies. Right. Um, and then eventually maybe there could even be a case where, you know, women who are unfortunately not able to carry young could could also, get, you know, give birth to their own children, uh, which would be just amazing. So there, there, there are a group of researchers working on that independently of us on the human health side. We're really focused on that on the conservation side, but obviously there's a lot of information sharing that goes back. Yeah, we are just animals at the end of the day. We are, yeah. I mean, we're just, you know, really bald monkeys at the end of the day. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are right. That is one of the most science fiction things I have ever heard. <laughs> It, it gives you real matrix vibes, right? It, yeah. You can kind of see a world of just a wall full of all these things. But but when we get to the idea of being able to restore a population from extinction, it's a slow burn to say we're going to birth two or four or 10 or 20 or even 100 a year uh, to get us to a sustainable population level. If we really want to pursue sustainability and create these nice, dy- you know, socially dynamic groups, we have to do it at scale. And uh, I think artificial wombs have a real potential to give us a scale that people can't even imagine yet. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, there's loads more I'd ask you, but I'm really conscious of time. And um, I just, I'm kind of imagining all the emails I'm going to get in response to this episode. <laughs> and, you know, and I think it's natural that some people will go, wow, this is sensational. And some people will remain cynical. And that's fine. You yeah. know, if I think about other debates, I'm really passionate about there are two sides and they're both making good points but um but the the importance is to have the debate right yeah totally and i just that's why i think you know ben has done a great job of making sure we're all open to that level of of cynicism that you know the the critique is important because it helps us question ourselves more it helps us shape our our you know our path forward and at the same time then it can also help us provide informed opinions whether you change your opinion and you become supportive or you at least have more information that that's really vitally important to us because i think what frustrates me is sort of that uh superficial response to a headline you know i i want somebody that that's thought about it's dug into it and goes i'm staunchly against this and here's my really well-formed opinion totally i i'll listen to those people for hours if that's the case mm-hmm. yeah i think for me you know and this is my personal opinion, not that I do it very often, is like, I would love to live in a world where we didn't need you and Colossal. I would love to live in a world where we didn't need, you know, global scale rewilding initiatives, ocean saving charities. I'd love to live in that world, but we don't. Mm -hmm. We do not live in that world. And we have caused a lot of the problems that you, rewilding initiatives, are now trying to fix. So, you know, my, my argument would be, you know, I say will always be, but I might change my mind one day. We need to do this stuff because of the things we have done historically. It exactly kind of feels that simple. Yep, and that and and in a similar vein, when we get the question of why don't you re- use that money for this very specific purpose, you know, my response is always, "Yeah, I don't go raise that money." Yeah, <laughs> like we raise the money because we have this unique resource and this this mind-blowing goal um and we're going to pursue that and it's going to create good all around it 
But if you really are staunchly against what, the way we're we're spending two hundred twenty five million dollars, I would challenge you to go go raise two hundred twenty five million dollars for your cause because that will make the world a better place. Yeah, totally. Well, I am. Um, I always end these conversations with the same two questions, so I'll ask you now and see if they're linked to the project or not. Um, ask you for your kind of gut answer. Um, yeah. What scares you? Um, I think inaction scares me. You know, that paralysis by analysis type of um, inaction is really terrifying. Things are scary, um, but the scariest thing we can do is to do nothing. Amazing. And what brings you hope? I mean, I live hope every day. Uh, I, I am just one of the most fortunate people in the world to work in an organization that has no bounds to its imagination, no bounds to its aspiration, and is looking to leave a mark on this world for for good. And to know that I can be a small part of that, to know that I could leave a legacy for my impending daughter uh, and, and have her be proud of something that we're doing, that gives me hope every day and it gives me a work ethic that, that I didn't know I was I was I had in me. Yeah, brilliant answers. And that was an amazing conversation. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks. I'm stoked to, to talk and, you know, happy to do it anytime. I, I, uh, like I said, I like to evangelize. So let's do it. <laughs> thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience.